Acts chapter 4, we're going to dive right into the text, beginning with verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now Luke is picking up on the story. Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 religious leaders plus the high priests. They kind of encapsulated the ruling body over domestic affairs there within Israel. Peter and John are standing before them to provide an explanation as to what power a miracle the day before had occurred, the healing of the lame man. We're told that by their response, a sermon that Peter and John gave, we looked at it last week, that this group of men, this group of religious men, of pious men, were told that they marveled at the explanation that was provided to them. This word marveled, it literally means that they had a begrudging admiration. It wasn't like that, that, that they marveled in the sense that they liked them anymore. It's just that they were kind of like, I still hate you, but I kind of admire you anyway. You know what that's like. It's a, it's a begrudging admiration. And it would appear from the text that there were three things that kind of caught their eye. First, we're told that they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Let me give you uh, the definition of this Greek word that we find here for boldness, because I'll be honest, I, I want this to describe me. I, I want people to see me and, and, be, and, and marvel. They don't have to like me, but they can marvel at the boldness that I might exert. This word, it, it means unreservedness in speech, to speak without concealment, without ambiguity, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage. Wouldn't you want that to describe you? Wow, that's a person of boldness. And realize that, that Peter wasn't exactly the boldest cat in the world, right? And yet, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, the cowardly lion, roared as if he were Aslan. So they first saw that they were bold. Secondly, they perceived that both Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. And to be fair, they were actually correct in their first assessment that these men were uneducated. Peter and John were both fishermen by trade. They would have had marginal education. These men had not been formally trained in the rabbinical schools of the day. They were blue collar. Matter of fact, you might just say that their clerical collars were a shade of dusty blue as opposed to pretentious white. They didn't go to the same cemeteries, I mean seminaries, that these other men might have actually gone to. And so in examining them, they realize, well, they're uneducated as opposed to us because we are educated. So they were, they were correct in that assessment because they didn't have any formal rabbinical training. And yet, we would totally disagree with the second assertion, right? That they were untrained men. For three and a half years, both Peter and John had been personally mentored by Jesus Christ himself. I mean, they had been trained. And think of the benefits of this on-the-job training. They're kind of obvious. First, by watching Jesus, by traveling with Jesus, by sitting with Jesus, they had been taught by Jesus what? The scriptures. Though they might have been uneducated in the sense that they hadn't been formally trained, they had sat in a lot of fantastic Bible teaching. 
They knew the scriptures. And, and we see this, right, in the book of Acts, because almost everything they're doing, what is Peter quoting? He's quoting scripture. Yes, he hadn't gone to seminary, but he still knew the scripture. Why? Because Jesus had taught him and he had listened. We also, by this on-the-job training, can, can see how they had experienced practical training on how to, how to deal with people's needs. I mean, Jesus was constantly meeting people's needs and ministering to people. We see this by the fact that, that Peter and John, that how they handled this lame man. They had experienced this training through a mentorship, mentorship with Jesus, an internship of some sort. They also knew how to what? How to handle detractors. They had watched Jesus, how he had spoken with boldness against the Pharisees, how he had handled himself against the scribes and against the elders, against this same group of people. So yes, while we would agree they were uneducated, we would reject the premise that they were untrained men. It should also be pointed out that they had also been filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore had been equipped by the Holy Spirit. Please note that the Spirit doesn't always call the equipped, but he always equips the called. You know all you need for ministry? All you need to serve in ministry, it's just two things, two simple things. You need to be mentored by Jesus. And secondly, you need to be filled with his spirit. So they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived they were uneducated, untrained men. The third thing they noticed is that they realized that they had been with Jesus. They realized. It's a Greek verb that means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to find out, or to ascertain. The King James Version actually translates this, that they took knowledge. The idea pre presented is that in response to the first two observations that they had made, that there was a curiosity. So they're watching Peter and John give an explanation. They see the boldness. They're like, they're not educated. They're not untrained. They're not trained. They're, they're tr processing it all. They're trying to equate. They're trying to figure this out. They're marveling. There's an admiration, but they want an explanation. And so they did some research. That's the idea behind the phrase, that they suck suck out knowledge, that they were looking for a reason why these men were the way that they were, and they conclude that they had been with Jesus. They ascertained to this information. And did you catch that? Catch the flow of that? An unbeliever encounters a witness. This encounter sets the unbeliever upon a quest to discover why the witness is so different. This quest then ultimately leads to whom? To Jesus. You see, it's textbook evangelism. This is exactly what we're to be. We're to be witnesses, which means we're to go and engage the world, engage culture, engage the unbeliever. And in the process of just being who we are, witnesses of Jesus Christ, the reaction of the unbeliever should be, man, there's something different about that person. There's something unique about that person. That person has a joy I don't, I don't understand. They have a peace. They, they seem to have love. They have something I don't. And I got to figure this out. What makes that person different from me? And then as they go upon ascertaining what makes this witness so different, you, hopefully that will lead them to a single person, a single explanation, a single reason. That Jesus has transformed your life. Now, why did it make sense 
to the religious leaders that Peter and John had been with Jesus. So they ascertained, they found out why these guys are different because they had been with Jesus and that made sense to them. I think there's two reasons why. First, what the Sanhedrin, what these religious leaders heard sounded like Jesus. And we discussed that in some part last week that the substance of their answer as to what power or by what name the miracle had occurred, their their response didn't present any new concepts for us. There was no new revelation. As a matter of fact, Peter and John, for the most part, were simply repeating what they had been previously taught by Jesus. Though men spoke, the people hearing recognized another voice, didn't they? They recognized the voice of Jesus, that Jesus' word was coming through them by the power of the Holy Spirit, further evidence of the resurrected Christ. The second thing they noticed is that they saw that what they saw remind so what they heard reminded them of Jesus, and then what they saw reminded them of Jesus. As we mentioned last Sunday, Peter, he kind of leaves his thought with a plea that there is no other name by which man can be saved. He pleads with them. I'm convinced that the motivation, as you're looking at Peter and John, that it was clear that though their words were strong, that they were not words of condemnation, but were rather words of persuasion. Yes, Peter and John, I'm convinced, their eyes burned with fire. Their words were laced with fire. But it was a fire of passion, not hate. A fire of love, not judgment. Please understand, if Christians are going to preach into this world the exclusive message of salvation in Jesus alone, we need to make sure that the people that we're speaking to, the people that are listening, not only hear his voice, but also see his love and the way we present this message. Ravi Zacharias issued a stark warning to the church. He said, if truth is not undergirded by love, it makes the possessor of truth that truth obnoxious, and the truth repulsive. Yes, we're to speak the truth, but never forget, we're to speak the truth, how? In love. Well, in seeing the man who had been healed, standing with them, Peter and John, the Sanhedrin could not say anything against it. I mean, they wanted to know by what authority the man had been healed. The answer was undeniably straightforward. This man, this man who used to be lame, for 40 years from birth in the temple, man, you're familiar with, like you can't deny it. He had been healed by Jesus. And you can sense that within this, they wanted to deny it. They wanted to cast it away. They wanted to look the other way. But how could you argue with the results? I mean, it's not every day that the guy who's been lame from birth is now walking, that he's healed. Luke tells us they could say nothing against it. The change in this man's life was so undeniable that they had nothing to say. No one could argue against it. Please note your testimony, which I think in many ways is very similar to the lame man. How we all, well, at one point had been crippled by sin. And yet we encountered Jesus. And it's through that encounter that what happened? There was a transformation in our lives. Lame because of sin but made alive, able to walk and run and experience through Jesus. That testimony that you have, please understand, it's as equally undeniable as the healing of the lame man. Sometimes when we are presenting the gospel, 
we feel this obligation to defend all all the, the criticism or to provide answers for all of the skeptics' questions, when in reality, the most potent thing we have to present is our own story of how I was dead, but now I'm alive. How I was crippled, but now I walk. Paul, as we'll see in our study through Acts, the most educated man of early Christianity, the man who could take on anyone with the sword of the Spirit through intelligence, we find that he will over and over again resort to one thing, his story of how he was a persecutor of the church until he was making his way to Damascus and he encountered Jesus and it changed him forever. Your testimony, it's radical, it's powerful, and who can argue against it? Now, when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, They conferred amongst themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Though they couldn't deny the miracle had taken place, the pressing question still remained. But what do we do with these men? Sadly, their remedy was to severely threaten them, hoping that this would keep the lid on the reality that Jesus was alive and very active. So they called them back in and they commanded to Peter and John and the lame man, them, not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, there's a problem here, right? Jesus had been clear in his command to his followers, right? Go out into all the world, preach the gospel in whose name? In his name, the name of Jesus. And yet now we have the civil governing authority saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We're giving you a command now not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, go out and speak in my name. But now the civil governing authorities are saying, don't do what Jesus has told you to do. Now, what do we do when the commands of God and the commands of our our governing civil authorities arrive at an unavoidable crossroads? Well, the answer, as we see with Peter and John, is that we should choose to obey the higher court of God, even if it means we're found in contempt of the lower court of man. I love their response. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John are saying, don't miss it, that what they're being asked to do would be fundamentally impossible for them to obey. His response, whether it's, it's we should obey you as opposed to God, you judge. But, but, but what you're asking is so fundamentally against everything that we stand, like there's no way that we can be obedient. He says, for we cannot but speak. Don't forget Christians are commissioned to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, which as we've mentioned before, describes who the believer is to be not necessarily what the believer goes out and does. It's as though Peter and John are saying, we cannot obey you 
because you're not asking us to refrain from doing something. You're asking that we stop being who we are. And we can't do that. For we cannot but speak. Who we are is the motivator of what we do, not what we do being the motivator of who we are. So you're not asking that we're just quiet. You're asking that we're not who we are. We are witnesses. And why? Because we have seen it and we've heard it. We can't detach ourselves from that reality. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, pause. Imagine the flood of emotions that Peter and John experience when they're let go. I mean, this is the same group of people that though they had no evidence to convict Jesus of any crime, manufactured something, petitioned Rome, and crucified him anyway. I I imagine that they went into this whole experience thinking that that was going to be it, that they would die for the cause of Christ, but they're let go. Imagine in that moment, that wave of joy. I'm sure there was joy in some regards, relief, maybe even confusion over the fact that they're being freed and not punished. Luke tells us that upon their release, they immediately go to their own companions. This is actually the Greek uh, word idios, their own companion. It literally means those in whom they belong. So they go to their companions to do something, to report or to bring back word on everything that had happened over the last you know, 12 to 24 hours. God had done an amazing work. He had done an amazing work in their lives, through their lives. They had been witnesses of Jesus. They had stared into the lion's den and had remained bold. And as they're telling the story, they're sharing of of everything that the Lord was teaching them and did through them. It's an awesome, awesome moment. They go to their companions The church community that we've looked at in some detail, it provided Peter and John opportunities for genuine koinonia, fellowship, life sharing. And it would appear from the text that these opportunities for community had yielded genuine companions. Now, what kind of companions did genuine church community provide them? I think kind of reading between the lines, we can kind of deduce a few observations. I think three things in particular about these companions we can take from the text, from the context. First, Peter and John had companions who cared for them. Like, I am sure when word began to work its its way back to the church leaders and the other apostles that Peter and John had healed this man, then they had preached the sermon, and then there's 5,000 added to the midst, but then they had been arrested. I am sure everyone, there was a deep concern that there was a care here, that they were moved, that they were in prayer. I'm sure that they were on their knees. I mean, Peter and John have been their de facto leaders right from the beginning. Now, what would happen? What would take place? So they had companions who cared for them, 
we're also, I think, can conclude that they had friends who were vested in what was happening in their lives. If their companions weren't vested in their lives, then why in the world would Peter and John have felt inclined to bring back a report? I mean, obviously, not only did they care for Peter and John, but they were kind of vested in what would happen, that there was some accountability. There was a, a deeper connection. Thus, they wanted to know what had happened and what was taking place. That their, their, uh, their love for Peter and John moved beyond simply caring for them, but that they were vested, invested, that it was deeper than that. We can also conclude that they had friends who were like-minded and that they were also followers of Jesus. Luke tells us that following the report, with one accord, they all, everyone present, Peter, John, the layman, presumably, all of their companions, they raise their voice to God. And next week we'll look at this incredible prayer slash praise that comes from their midst. Here's my question this morning. Do you, do you have genuine companions? Those in whom you belong, who care for you, who are vested in what is happening in your life and are like-minded in the fact that they also are followers of Jesus. Do you have these kind of companions? You know, the reality is that statistics reveal that most Americans and Christians don't. That, that most people do not have these kind of relationships. Companions, BFFs, people that they can confide in no matter what, that they're really sharing life with. And just over the last 25 years, playing cards with friends has decreased 25%. The number of people who have friends over for dinner, their home, it's down 35%. The number of restaurants and bars, or what we would call watering holes, have, have decreased in the last 25 years, 40%, with the number of fast food restaurants doubling. The number of bowlers has increased 10%, which is pretty cool. I like that. But sadly, those participating in a bowling league, down 40%. So we like to bowl, but we don't like to bowl with people. Today... 28% of American households consist of one person living alone. Did you catch that? 28% of American households consist of one person living alone. In Atlanta, this number is 40%. Astounding. In 2013, there were actually more single-person households in America than there were married-with-children households. This cultural shift can be best illustrated by looking at the, the decline in what sociologists call discussion confidants. Let me give you a definition for a discussion confidant. This is a person that you trust enough to talk about anything. Your closest, closest friends. In 1985, Americans averaged 2.94 discussion confidants. In 2004, the number decreased 30% to 2.08. In 2008, the number dropped another 8% to 1.93. It dropped under 2. This alarming decline indicates that most people today 
are living without genuine community. That it's something that is decreasing in American society, that we are in many ways becoming loners. And the church, Christians, are not immune to the same statistics, these trending stats. While the majority of Americans claim to be Christian, nearly 50% of Americans today don't have or don't claim any church home. Of those who do attend frequently, unaffiliated has become the fastest growing denominational category among Protestant Christians. Over the last two years, an astounding 50% of all churches in America did not add one new member over the last two years. Since 1980, church membership dropped more than 25%. With the period, the 10-year period from 1992 to 2003, seeing the greatest decline, 13% in church attendance, while the population of America actually exploded some 9%, which exaggerates the statistics even further. Though America is trending, towards being a loner society, and this psychological, sociological shift has affected Christians. Please understand, that's not an excuse. The reality is, as Christians, Jesus did not design the Christian experience, our walk with God, to be a go-it-alone proposition. Jesus, as we see with Peter and John, desires, he created the whole thing for you to have companions. You need companions. Genuine koinonia, genuine connections, genuine community for three reasons. First, you need Christian companions for spiritual health. You know, it's interesting that Luke describes Peter and John's friends as their own companions. And we mentioned uh, what this phrase literally means, those in whom they belong, the companions. Now understand, these people, they were companions not in the sense that they belonged to one another in the sense that they were owned to each other or that they belonged to each other. They weren't companions because they belonged to each other. They were companions because they all belonged to Jesus. Please get that. They weren't companions because they just like really clicked. It's because they each had clicked with Jesus. They all belonged to Jesus, and thus that made them companions. This bond tethered them with a single reality that they had a common Savior and served a common Lord. And the great masterpiece of cinema, Toy Story 2, Buzz Lightyear and Woody, they were companions. They were companions really kind of for only one reason, weren't they? The one thing that made Buzz Lightyear and Woody companions, bosom buddies, is that they were both property of the same master. They were both owned. They both belonged to a boy named Andy. Though Buzz and Woody would not agree. As a matter of fact, they probably disagreed more than they would agree. They genuinely cared for each other, didn't they? We, if, you, if you've never seen the movie, they did. There was a bond, and it was because they were owned by the same boy. And as a result, they encouraged each other through difficulties. For what purpose? They were owned 
by the same boy. They had the same master, and this created an unbreakable bond. And consider the implications of this reality. Though you can have friends that aren't Christians, and by the way, I would encourage you to. Like, it's hard to be light and salt in the world if we're separated from the world. So I'm not, I'm not preaching here an isolationalism. You should be friends and engage in community to shine a light for the purpose of being a witness. But understand, can you really have a companion in the sense of how we're discussing these companions who isn't following Jesus? Can you really connect with someone or, or, or have a companion when they don't belong to the same person that you belong to? Can you really be a companion with someone if you are in actuality embarked on two separate journeys heading towards two different destinations? I would say no. Yes, have friends that aren't believers, but I don't think you can have genuine companionship. Not in the sense of what's being described here with Peter and John and this first century community. As human beings, God created us, each of us, you and me, with a deep desire to belong. And while this is ultimately satisfied in the fact that we all are members of the family of God, it is to our benefit that we find other believers that we can have as companions, that we find other believers that we can connect to in meaningful, deep relationships. A few years ago, a landmark paper was written titled, The Need to Belong, Desire for Interpersonal Attachments as the Fundamental Human Motivation. I actually included a link to the full study itself at c316.tv. In this paper, psychologists present what is known as the belongingness hypothesis. And this states that people need, fundamentally, close, caring, intimate relationships, and therefore are deeply affected psychologically when they don't have them. I'll give you an example of this. For years and years and years, scientists always believed that depression was the motivating factor of loneliness. That a person that was depressed, that their depression drove them to being isolated and lonely. And yet, in 2006, a report was published by the University of Chicago that actually flipped the script. It actually completely uh, challenged the entire notion. You see, they were able to present evidence that depression didn't create loneliness, but actually loneliness was the motivating factor of depression, which is why if you're feeling depressed, it's, it's because you have allowed yourself to get alone, to become isolated. And one of the, the biggest things that people will encourage someone dealing with depression is don't be isolated. Get yourself out of it. Like, push yourself to have connections with other people. Even if it's as simple as coming to a shrink, make a connection. Why? Because loneliness drives depression. Depression doesn't drive loneliness. We need to belong. And so you need, you need companions for your health, spiritually. If you don't have them, you are worse off as a result. 
You also need Christian companions for spiritual support. So spiritual health, spiritual support. Parts of the benefits of having companions is that these relationships with them come the opportunity to depend on and also to be relied upon, depending on whatever the circumstance presents. Relationships, companions, as you're journeying with another, there are natural occasions where you need someone to help you But then there are other instances where you need to support someone else. You see, it's cool because companionship, it goes both ways. It's not always that I'm needed. It's that I'm needed and I need. See what I'm saying? Aaron Ralston learned the hard way, the importance of having companions in the journey. As depicted on the movie based on his story, 127 Hours, Aaron was forced to cut off his own arm in order to save his life after getting stuck while hiking alone. The cardinal rule of going into the woods is have a companion. And if not, make sure someone knows where you're going and knows when you're planning to return. Have you ever noticed, just generally speaking, the physical and emotional effects that occur when a close friend, a companion, Gives you a big hug, knowing that you're kind of blue. Like, like you come to church, you're down and out, you just had a heck of a week. And you come in, and someone that is a companion, someone that cares for you, sees you and just gives you a hug. Have you ever noticed just the physical and emotional release that happens? You know, scientists have actually been able to show that the embrace of a friend triggers within the brain first an initial release of oxytocin, which is a hormone that will create the sensation of trust, while also immediately reducing levels of the stress hormone, cortisol. So because when someone gives you a hug, your brain immediately releases these two chemicals, it actually relaxes and refocuses the brain on its primary purpose, problem solving. James A. Cohen, a psychologist at the University of Virginia, he stated that our brains have been wired to literally share the processing load with one another. And this is the signal that we're getting when we receive support through physical touch. You know, a hug is literally the body interpreting that as I'll share the load with you. You don't have to go it alone. I'm right there with you. I'll support you. I got your back. I'll hold up your arms when you're weak. So we need companions because our health depends on it. Jesus didn't design, didn't create the experience to be it, go it alone. Our health depends on it. But also we need companions for support because trust me, there will be mountaintops and there will be valleys and you need to transverse them both with others. But thirdly, you need Christian companions for spiritual strength. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon presents the benefits of friendship using the analogy of a threefold cord not being easily broken. We use it a lot when it comes to marriage, but it's, it's actually in context discussing friendship. That a threefold, threefold cord isn't easily broken. And Scripture is constantly presenting example after example after example of people that God did amazing things through who had companions who also 
needed friends. Now, aside from the New Testament, because we're already looking at some of them, think back to the old. Moses had Aaron. Ruth had Naomi. David had Jonathan. And then the mighty men of valor. Elijah had Elisha. Daniel had the three amigos. You just go through the list, and you find that nobody's going it alone. And if these great men of faith couldn't go it alone, you're a fool to think you can. And analyzing the interactions of professional basketball players, scientists at the University of Berkeley were actually able to show, it's a fascinating study, that human touch is actually a driving force behind an individual's performance. That players, as they studied the NBA, Players who are constantly touching. I know this kind of wigs us out. But players that are constantly touching and being touched by their teammates rated higher on almost all measures of physical performance than those who didn't. Their study discovered that good teams are by and large touchier than bad ones. Apparently. A handshake when you enter church, or a jubilation hug, or a high five, maybe even an old fashioned attaboy. That those things, human connection, human touch, that they mean way more to our spiritual health than we would have ever thought. I'm not saying hug. To hug. Because I'll be, I'll be frank, hugs kind of creep me out. Not like you're really close to my space. You know what I mean? But the truth is, is you need to connect in some way. This is why we have greeters at the front door that are instructed to shake your hand. They're instructed actually to make some kind of physical connection. And I know that sounds weird, but the purpose behind it is that when you come in, if you're never touched by a single person, you actually, deep psychologically, will feel like you didn't connect. Human touch is human connection. And according to Berkeley, helps with spiritual performance. That we need these things. As a Christian, you will not make it if you do not have Christian companions. I mean, not even Rambo came back for a fifth season, a fifth movie. Like, you can't go it alone. It's impossible. You need help. You need friends. You need companions for health, spiritual health, and support, and strength. Now, the critical question that we'll close with is how do you get those kind of companions? Because there are some of you that are sitting here, and everything I'm saying, you're, you're applying. And you're attributing to people in your life. You're like, I have companions. And yeah, I see how th th there's health here, and th there's support, and, and I see the benefits. I get it. But there are others of you I know are sitting here thinking, I don't have that. And I want that. I need that. I get it. I need it. How? How do I get that? Let me give you three simple pieces of advice. First, this is not rocket science. Attend church. I know, shocker, right? Like great theological statement. You need companions? Hey, come to church. Tom Rainier, 
whose field focuses on statistical research related to church growth, he made an interesting observation concerning the decline that we've seen in church attendance. Tom Rainier said that the number one reason, according to his research, for the decline in church attendance is that members attend with less frequency than they did just a few years ago. If the frequency of attendance changes, then the attendance will respond accordingly. For example, if 200 members attend every week, the average attendance is obvious. It's 200. But if one half of those members miss one out of four weeks, the attendance actually drops 12.5% to 175 people. His study revealed that church attendance is in decline, not because there's a lot of people leaving church, but because people are simply attending with less frequency. He finishes his example by saying that while no members left this church and everyone was still relatively active, attendance still declined because half the members changed their attendance behavior just slightly, one out of four Sundays. One out of four, and it dropped 12.5%. And we wonder why. Statistics shows that so many Christians struggle when it comes to plugging into church community, that so many Christians don't have companions. We wonder why. If everyone attended church only once a month, everyone, you would stand only a 6% chance to see the same people week to week. If everyone attended only half the time, you would stand a 25% chance to see the same people each week. If everyone at Calvary 316 only attended three out of four Sundays, you would still only have a 56% chance to see the same people week to week. And you might say, well, that's if everyone's doing it. Well, what about the people that are here every week that want to connect with you? If you only come every other Sunday, that means we only see you twice a month. How can you make a meaningful connection with someone if you only see them naturally twice a month? It's hard. It's really simple. It is impossible for a person to take advantage of the opportunities to develop companions within the church community if that person isn't first willing to make it a priority to come to church every Sunday. Please note, as a deliberate ministry model of Calvary 316, we believe that one organized meeting a week, one church service a week, is all people actually need to make a real connection with another person. And and let me define a real connection. One that manifests into an interaction outside of the church some other time. We would call that genuine koinonia. So we believe at Calvary 316 that all you really need is one opportunity to connect once a week to, in the process of time, develop a connection strong enough that it will translate into inviting someone over for dinner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, is that people don't take advantage of coming once a week, which makes it vastly difficult. So many churches tragically end up filling their calendar with activity after activity after activity to foster community within the church, to address the need, when in actuality, the most basic solution to the community issue is doing nothing more than encouraging people to attend Sunday consistently. 
I don't see my parents once a week. Like, you don't need to see people all the time for a Sunday event, then a Monday event, and then a Wednesday night event, and then another Friday event. And it's, it's the same people that only go to those anyway. It's actually not solving any problem. The most basic solution is to say, you want to connect? Come to church every Sunday. You'll stand a greater opportunity too. Here's the honest truth. As we evaluate Calvary 316 in order to plan for the future, one simple reality is unavoidable. We have found there to be one singular difference between the people that are engaged in church community here at Calvary 316 or those people who have found and are developing real Christian companions and the people who are struggling to make these important connections. There's one thing that separates the two groups and it is consistent attendance on Sunday morning. You look around at what is the church community and you will see that they're the same people that come every week and we can connect every week. And thus we can build from week to week to week on our relationships with the people that are struggling. Maybe one month it's once out of every four Sundays or maybe it's every other Sunday. It's sporadic. And thus you, you, you wonder, why is it difficult for me to connect to anyone? Because you're not here enough to connect. That's the problem. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times where you got to miss church. you got a sick kid. you got a migrant. Stay home. I get it. But, we're, but you know what I'm talking about. There's daylight savings. It's an hour. Yeah, the church in China has to meet underground in fear of persecution. You know, churches in Saudi Arabia are underground because, well, they would die by the edge of the sword, but man, they don't know what it's like to have to wake up an hour earlier and really suffer for Jesus. Like, come on, it's about a heart, isn't it? The second bit of advice, so come to church, attend church. If you want to have companions, you want to develop companions. Two, be friendly. I know, rocket science. You know, though coming to church is the critical first step because it presents a person with opportunities to develop genuine Christian companions, it is also a reality that a person must be willing to take advantage of those opportunities to develop friends. Calvary 316. We can be the friendliest place on the planet. I kind of think we are. But if a person is not willing to put in a little effort to make a friend, to be friendly, there's really nothing we can do to help. Like we, adding more events is not helping you. Like you have to be a friend. If a person genuinely desires church community, it's ultimately up on that person to find to initiate, to create, to develop friends with other believers. And I know that it might take bold effort to say hello to someone that you don't know before the service. It might require a step of faith to invite someone to lunch after church. But understand, some of the greatest companions you will ever have in your Christian experience are those you had to work hard to develop and even harder to maintain. <clears throat> Andy Press. Let me give you a qualifier. We as a church, you and me, we both, we should do everything in our power to make it as easy as possible 
for the person who wants companions, who needs community to find these things at Calvary 316. I know it's on that person. It's ultimately their responsibility. But on the side point, help. Go overboard. If you see someone that's not connecting, when we have a potluck, sit with them. Introduce yourself. Reach out and connect. Own it. Because we need companions, and that person needs companions. And sometimes it's difficult for an individual to take that step, to speak out, to have faith. The third thing is utilize resources. So first, attend church. Every Sunday, if you can, it's helpful. Two, be friendly when you're here or take advantage of the opportunity. So you're seeing the same people every week now, and now it's like, okay, I got to say hello and say hello and kind of work through that. But then the third thing is utilize resources. Though Calvary 316 cannot force a person to attend every week, and it's impossible for us to create companions. We do understand that some people need a smaller, more intimate environment to connect with others than the corporate gathering on Sunday mornings afford. This is why we offer every Sunday morning a prayer meeting before the service. It's a small group of people praying. Like, you don't even have to introduce yourself. You can just pray. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk to you, so I'll just get together and we'll just talk to God. Like, we'll just start there. A prayer meeting. Or, or come up early and just have a bowl of cereal. Or a cup of coffee. Put yourself out there. Utilize an opportunity or a resource. It's why we invest energy into hosting church fellowships or sisterhood events or band of brothers activities or activities for moms and for kids. All of the things that we do by design, everything at Calvary 316, aside from our Sunday service, is designed with one purpose in mind, only one, and that is to help people connect so that they can develop companions. But once again, These things are only beneficial if you choose to take advantage of them. If you don't come to church, you're not willing to be friendly, and you can't utilize an opportunity to hang out with some other ladies or some of the guys, and you're like, I don't have friends. That place is not friendly. No, you're not doing anything to develop companions. You know, another way that Calvary 316 is working to foster community within the church is through the internet and our social media resources. As you know, every Sunday, Marshall, who does our announcements, will encourage you to follow Calvary 316 on Twitter, to like us on Facebook, to subscribe to the email database, to visit the websites. We do this Not because there's some like sense of ego to having as many followers as we can. Like who cares? We do this for a very specific reason. You know, I mentioned earlier how we have seen a dramatic decrease in the average number of discussion confidants over the last 25 years. You know, 2.94 in 1985 to 1.93 in 2008. You know, what's interesting is this past year, Pew Research updated their statistics. And what they found is that the number of discussion confidants actually rose. They were shocked. It rose 11% over the last five years to 2.16. 
And though some older folks are going to hate to hear it, Pew was able to directly attribute this increase to two factors. One, increased internet usage, and two, increased social media use. Today, if you use the internet on a daily basis, you have 2.27 discussion confidants. That's 15% more than the low in 2008. If you rarely use the internet, well, that number actually drops an astounding 14% to 1.75. That's 10% down from the low in 2008. Those who use some form of instant messaging on the net end up having 12% more confidants than those who use the internet but don't use instant messaging. 25% more than those who don't use the internet at all. Picking up on it? The average discussion confidant for someone actively on a social network of some kind Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. You would include Google+, but no one uses that. It's up. So if, if you use social media, it's up, your discussion confidants, up to 2.45. That's a 22% increase from the low in 2008 and up 12% from just the average in 2013. Studies are proving that the notion of social networks destroying society is categorically false. They summarized their findings by saying the use of social networks in general was not found to have a negative relationship with the overall number of close ties at all. However, frequent users of Facebook have larger core networks. For example, someone who uses Facebook a few times per day tends to have 9% more strong ties. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Personally, I find Facebook and Twitter to be a wonderful tool on staying connected with the Calvary 316 community. As a matter of fact, I'm really bad when it comes to, to names, but I'm really good with faces. So a lot of the times if I meet someone, as soon as you walk away, I've forgotten your name. That's just, it was like the stroke I had years back. I just, it doesn't function in memory. But I will go later in the afternoon and find you on Facebook just to try to associate the face with the name so that next time I see you, I can at least say hello. I love the fact that just by logging on, I can see what's up with your kids. Or that Amy's little girl was throwing up over the night. And, and, and thus, I can pray for her. Like, there's community there. There's connection. That's why we encourage you to like us on Facebook, to follow us on Twitter, because it will help you connect with your church. Now, it won't create companions for you. But it will help you develop the companions you already have. In conclusion, since you need companions who will care for you, are vested in what's happening with you, and are like-minded in that they also follow Jesus. Since you need companions for spiritual health, for support, for strength, let's keep it simple. Come on Sunday morning. Make Sunday attendance a priority. You can't do it if you don't. Be friendly when you're here by seeking to initiate connections. And thirdly, utilize the resources your church is providing, the resources your church is making available to help you 
in this process, Peter and John, God did an amazing thing. And they immediately went to share it with those in whom they belonged, their companions. So, Father, with that word, 